80, maybe even 90% of all breast cancer on planet Earth, that is from what? And I'll tell you what, it's from our daily choices, every single choice we make, particularly every time we lift fork to mouth and chew and swallow, these choices are moving us closer to cancer or farther away. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen this week, or a view, or a download. Wherever it is in the world that you are, we appreciate the fact that you are here. Let's beat breast cancer. That is the motto for the exam room throughout the month of October, and it's also the name of the wonderful campaign that the Physicians Committee is embarking on. Over the course of the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about a disease that will strike one out of every eight women in their lifetime. Going to be taking a deep look at this thing. What is it? Why does it happen? What can you do to lower your risk of getting it? Especially if your mother has had it, your sisters have had it, your cousins. What can be done to turn off that breast cancer gene? We'll be getting into the epigenetic science behind all of that. And we will hear from survivors who will share their stories of hope and inspiration. What have they learned from their journey? What can they share to comfort those battling breast cancer and comfort those who are scared that their battles will soon begin. We're going to be joined by leading experts in the field who have devoted their entire careers to beating breast cancer. And that includes our guest today, Dr. Christy Funk. She is the author of Breasts, the Owner's Manual, and more importantly, the surgeon who was saving lives at the Pink Lotus Center. Dr. Funk has worked with the likes of Angelina Jolie and Cheryl Crow, and she is also the face of the Physicians Committee's Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. So on the show today, we are going to learn all about the strong ties between diet, lifestyle, and the risk of cancer. And it is amazing how much Dr. Funk says that the possibility of getting it it plummets just by changing up what you eat and getting up off the couch. We'll also hear about her unique journey into this field. She didn't even want to be a doctor at first, but lo and behold, here she is at the top of her game and saving lives. And she's working with some of the most sought after names in entertainment. And we're also going to learn why the risk of getting cancer increases with age and what you should be eating to counter that. So there's a lot of science and more importantly, a lot of hope that will be shared. Before we bring on Dr. Funk, I wanted to let you know that this episode of the Exam Room Podcast and the Let's Beat Breast Cancer Campaign wouldn't be possible without the support of our powerful partners, 
like Salad Master, which inspires better cooking and healthier living with their premium 316 stainless steel cookware that is filled with delicious opportunities. Invite Salad Master to come cook for you. Learn more at SaladMaster.com. Also, Vitamix, bringing a cutting-edge lineup of powerful blenders and expanding your culinary repertoire since 1949. Visit them online at Vitamix.com. And the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Leaders in professional development, education, and community outreach in the field of integrative medicine throughout the Washington region. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. It is October, and all month long, we are going to be talking about our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. And the woman who is at the forefront of this campaign, and somebody that knows an awful lot about a very important topic, is the one and only Dr. Christy Funk. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Chuck. Great to be here. It's so great to have you. I wanted to start by asking you about your book, Breasts, the Owner's Manual seems like such a lighthearted title and a fun approach to really just such a serious topic. Do you find that it's important to come at something that can be so scary like this with a little bit of levity and some humor? You know what? It's critical. It's critical that people see a cancer diagnosis or the threat of cancer if it's just a breast lump at this juncture in the, you know their workup as a completely surmountable obstacle that you will emerge from stronger for having gone through that journey, be it short or long. And I think one of the most satisfying, happiest moments in my career is whenever I'm talking to a newly diagnosed cancer patient, she comes in with or without supportive friends or family. She could be alone, but we go through the whole game plan. This is what cancer is. This is everything we can do to treat and cure it. Now let's hone in on you and make a game plan. And by the end of that hour or so, so many times in my career, and it's so heartwarming, people say, you know, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but you make having breast cancer sound fun. (laughs) (laughs) Downplay it. It is not fun. It it is definitely, you know, a struggle that people need to maneuver through, and it's never a welcome thing. But it's here. So let's make the best of it, and let's get through it. Right. And win. And this is something now that you're devoting your life to, you're the co-founder of the Pink Lotus Breast Cancer Center uh, out there in uh, Beverly Hills. Um, but as I understand it, being a doctor wasn't really even on your radar initially, right? Not at all. No. I grew up really just always doing my best at things. That's my mentality. If you show me how to do it right, why would I do it wrong? So I did really well in school, very well in athletics, and I love drama. I did a lot of plays. Even though I grew up in Los Angeles back in the 70s and 80s, that wasn't it wasn't a thing. My parents, it never occurred to them like, hey, let's get her an agent and make her an actual actress. Like, I just loved doing plays in school. And then I thought, I love theater so much, I may just continue to do this, but weave it into a psychology major at Stanford and create psychodrama for children. I wanted to help kids heal and repair with theatrical, creative play from whatever their trauma was, whether it was abuse as a child or battling a childhood leukemia. Then I was studying for this neuropsychology final at the end of my sophomore year at Stanford. And it wasn't audible, but it was an absolute epiphany, like overtaking my thoughts, you're going to be a doctor. Just that one line. (laughs) And I was like, hmm, 
not really, but okay. <laughs> and then, it, but it really did invade my thoughts to the point where I was like, okay, I get it. This is something God thinks I should be doing, but I'm still not going to do it. Or maybe, maybe if I go through the pre-med track, I'm going to find my husband and I'm going to marry a doctor. Like that really was my mentality. Could and be. Uh, immediately after I finished that block of finals, I flew to Africa and I was in Kenya for two and a half months the whole summer as a short-term missionary. I was teaching um, religion classes out in a dung hut with Kipsigese tribe. And I had this second epiphany moment that happened while I was sitting on the floor of a home with all these little tribal kids around me and I had gotten lost. The car had broken down that my the lady I was there, the missionary I was with, she went to town to try to figure out what to do and I was stuck in the car. And all of a sudden it starts rocking and all faces <laughs> were looking in at this you know white girl sleeping in the back seat so I get up and I follow them to their house we sit down and I took a bunch of potatoes and was trying I was trying to balance them on my head at this very moment <laughs> making them laugh and all of a sudden just their laughter with their missing teeth and their lack of clothes and their dirty clothes and the no shoes in the hut that was someone's home that had nothing in it I was so overwhelmed with the simple fact that joy in life comes from within, but it's really hard to be joyful when you're unhealthy, when you're sick, when you're outside and insides are dying, it's hard for your mind to overcome that. And it just struck me in a way juxtaposed to the voice, so to speak, that I was going to be a doctor, that this was the most noble and important thing I could spend my time on earth doing, was to help other people mm -hmm. find their healthiest selves. And just like that, I, when I came back to Stanford, everything changed. My whole major, I got into all of the calculus and science and physics and OCHEM and PCHEM and all these classes that I never thought about taking before. And I powered through and I did it. And I'm so grateful. I mean, if you're willing to commit to those kinds of courses, you were definitely uh, <laughs> touched by that second epiphany. I mean, because that does, that takes a major commitment. It does, and it doesn't end there. You know, med school was a beast, and then residency as a general surgeon was, for me, um, dating myself, but there were no hour restrictions. So I was working 110, 120 hours a week. You're up every night, all night, Ooh. for every other, every third night. It just never ended. It was five years of constant. Wait, I'm sorry. Did you say 120 hours a week? Oh, yeah. Sometimes I would just sleep on the light wow. floor. Like, I wasn't on call, but it was too late to go home. Wasn't There was no point. I had to be back in three hours. Yeah. We went through that, crazy stuff. Wow. That's insane. Talk about paying your dues, right? No. Um, but y your story takes another twist because, as I understand it as well, you were really interested in doing general surgery at first. You thought that that was going to be your calling. You know, honing in on breast wasn't even on your radar at that point either. So how did you get into this field? So when I finished my general surgery residency, I just loved the stomach, loved the esophagus, loved gastric bypass. And that was my favorite organ. And I wanted to do uh, minimally invasive surgery. So this was in um, 89, 90, when laparoscopy was really just starting. We had done most of our gallbladders open in my residency. So I knew mm. if I wanted to maintain being a cutting-edge general surgeon, pun intended, I would need to learn laparoscopy. So I searched for a fellowship in that and landed on one 
at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles with the oh-so-talented Edward Phillips. And he wore two hats. He wore the MIS minimally invasive hat and also was the director of the Breast Center at Cedars where they were needing some female influence. I mean, there were five men over 50 at that place and no women. So some estrogen was definitely um, mm. needed and he saw me as that person, but I didn't. So it was a struggle. It was a moment of, he didn't give me long. He was like, so I know you're here for this other fellowship, but we really need someone to help in the breast center. So what you're really going to do is become a breast surgeon. I mean, if you want, it's all up to you. If you want, <laughs> you have you know, right. No pressure. No pressure. Yeah, exactly. A couple weeks to decide. And honestly, I did a deep dive into my heart and soul and was like, this is my career. This is easy. I don't want to do breast surgery. That's so easy. Like I just a second ago could crack your chest open and have you on bypass in 40 minutes. Like really breast surgery. And then I realized that was my pride talking and I needed to think deeper about what women need, what women want, what my talents could bring to their experience, their unwelcome experience of breast cancer. And I accepted. So I did a breast cancer fellowship in surgery instead, and then did end up run um, as one of the directors of the Breast Center at Cedars, ran that for seven years until my husband, Andy, and I opened the Pink Lotus Breast Center now 10 years ago. I, I want to ask you about the Pink uh, Lotus Center here in just a little bit, because before we got rolling, you and I were talking about it, and the depth of the programs that are offered there, I think, is just unrivaled. Um, but you, you talk about giving thought to what women need and, and the opening that there was in the market at that time. How, you know, was breast cancer something that had touched you or, or a family member or a friend at that point? Quite honestly, no, I hadn't had any experiences with, with breast cancer. My mother, when I was just two years old, was 37 at the time and fell into a massive inexplicable stroke and was at the edge mm. of death. They were very Catholic. They had, you know, the sacrament of the, what they called segment? Last rites. Last rites. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Communion yeah. and all that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. <clears throat> it was definitely um, inexplicable. Back in 1971, when this happened, there were no CT scans even. So the, all they had at UCLA where she was was an angiogram. And there was nothing wrong with the blood vessels to her head. And she was in a coma. And there she lay for three weeks. And when she finally woke up, she's been paralyzed my whole life. Um, just a hemiparesis. And she was so tenacious in her spirit and determined to get back to being fully functional or as fully as possible that she really did it. I mean, she literally was able to walk without a cane, just swinging her leg around. She would make my lunch every day for school, chasing the peanut butter jar with one hand across the counter. I mean, she was such an inspiration. And to know that someone could overcome incredible adversity and know that you would never overcome it fully, right? Without a miracle happening in her limbs just awakening, she would remain partially paralyzed, and yet she would not remain a partial person. She really is such an example to me of the human spirit and what it can do to overcome illness and unwanted adversity that I think that drove me into medicine from an emotional point of view. And that's what makes me love breast surgery so much. I mean, you you had Wonder Woman as a mother, uh, for goodness sakes. I mean, that's that's what it sounds like to me. And 
I think that when you have that type of inspiration under the same roof, especially during your formative years, would you say that that's also why you've kind of become a leader in this field? You've really taken that ball and you've run with it and you've become, you know, so well known in this field. And and now women are turning to you for hope. Is this just your way of kind of paying it forward? I like that idea. I never thought of it that way, but it certainly could be. I feel very privileged in my life to have had the family that I do have and did have growing up. My mom obviously was an extreme role model, but so was my father. He was very gentle and loving, excuse me, full of compassion and caring. And quite frankly, at the time that this happened to my mom, talk about wedding vows of in sickness and in health. He did not sign up to have five kids under the age of 13 and a paralyzed wife who didn't come home from rehab for the first four years after that stroke. And yet, Mm. and never a day went by where he didn't love her to the core. He just is the perfect example of um, commitment, commitment, come what may. Uh, Count your blessings, Dr. Funk. I mean, that's, you know, you hit the the lottery when it comes to (laughs) families. That's that's really extraordinary. Yes, I agree. Um, So getting back to to your career, you climb through the ranks, you become very well known in this field. And um, then we start to see headlines about Angelina Jolie's surgeon. And that person is you. And now you've also worked with Sheryl Crow, another very famous person out there. You know, like, how how did you rise to that level of prominence? I mean, these are pr- pretty heavy hitters now that are coming to you for help. Right. Cheryl was first, by the way. Cheryl's cancer was about 12 or okay. 15 years ago. Um, you know, it's really, I think, all because of these celebrities have the input and voices of so many people that they do know. And then hundreds of thousands of people who are complete strangers but that love them because of who Mm. they are and what the impact they've made on their personal lives, right, as their fan base. So they can get extremely confused very fast knowing what the best thing to do is in terms of picking out a surgeon. Um, And they invariably will trust the doctor they already trust. So for me, I had very strong relationships with whether it be the gynecologist or internist that – was taking care of these women and others that recommended me. So they trusted that because they've haven't been left because they'd never been let down before by these doctors. They just followed in that suit. So I'd like to say it was something extraordinary about me personally that attracted them to me. But I think they just followed the suggestion of someone else they already trusted with their health. Well, I mean, you could look at it that way or you could look at it as fate. I mean, you you did get two, you know, voice of God type epiphany moments in your life. And, you know, if if that's the path you are meant to lead, you know, like the universe is just coming together for you. Um, Let's let's kind of dive into breast cancer a little bit here, because that is really the focus of the show. I want to ask you about some of the current statistics there. Uh, What, first of all, is the current rate of breast cancer here in the U.S.? The current rate is one in eight women, which is 12.5%. And men get breast cancer too. That is a little Mm -hmm. overlooked fact. It is nowhere near the stat of women. It's about 1.3 in every 100,000 men. But nevertheless, 1% of all breast cancers diagnosed will happen in men. And because they're largely unaware that they actually have breast tissue and that lump or pain they're feeling could mean something significant, 
the male breast cancers are often diagnosed at later stages, so cure rates are a little lower. Um, but the majority of breast cancer, of course, is in women. And approximately uh, 250,000 women this year in the U.S. will be diagnosed with an invasive cancer, another 60,000 with a stage zero in situ cancer, and about 40,000 women will die from breast cancer. So although it is not hype, it's true that we are finding cancers at smaller sizes and earlier stages, and they're more curable than ever with better biologic targeted agents and other things we can use in terms of treatment, it is still a sad fact that tens of thousands of women die from this disease. So we have a lot of work to do. Well, I I think then, you know, the the lay question is you just put the numbers out there. So let's crunch them a little bit. What is the general survival rate for breast cancer diagnosis here? You know, obviously, the later it's caught, the more difficult it becomes. But generally speaking, so generally speaking, survival rates are excellent. We doctors think in terms of five year survival and then 10 and on. But the reason why we focus on five year survival is that gives someone today a prognosis that's relevant to the treatments she will be undergoing. If I give you a 25 year survival rate, well, then that's hearkening back to the 90s before even, say, Herceptin as a drug was available. Right. So it's the wrong percent for what you're going to be treated with. But five-year reflects a real accurate number for you, but it's not giving you the long-term outlook. So all that to say, the five-year survival rates for early-stage breast cancer are phenomenal, 99% of stage zero and one, 98% stage two. Yeah, so we are really good at at finding things earlier and getting a treatment path under underway. I'll tell you what is still disappointing, though, and that is, it's really hard to have a solid number, but it's somewhere around 22 to 26% of all women diagnosed with breast cancer will eventually die from that breast cancer. Mm. So we have, that's why I'm so excited. That's why my messaging points, what we're talking about, about to talk about, is so critical and important. And I feel, I feel like it, it is my... My charge in life, like my job is to not rest and not stop talking about how dietary and lifestyle changes can dramatically alter and impact getting a breast cancer diagnosis, dealing with one, and not dying from one. All of it, every part of that journey of life can be tremendously altered for better or for worse, depending on what those dietary and lifestyle choices are within your world. Yeah, we talk about that so much here on the show. Uh, when, when Dr. Neil Barnard is on with me, you know, he, he talks about genes, how essentially they're just like a switch that can be turned on and off depending on your diet and, and your lifestyle. Um, but let's let's talk about genes because breast cancer is one of those diseases that people, I think, perhaps more closely than any other, associate with genetics, this and Alzheimer's disease, I think, are kind of neck and neck. If a woman, if her mom had it, if her sister had it, if, you know, her cousins have it, what does that do in terms of elevating her risk of contracting that disease or developing the disease? So there's two ways to think about how family history plays into elevating an individual woman's risk. The one is, did she inherit a genetic mutation? 
And that would come from either your mother or your father. You are half your dad's DNA. So we have to look at dad's mom's sister. She died of pancreatic cancer. Hmm, that's a rare one. And is there any Ashkenazi Jewish background? Because in particular, the BRCA genetic mutations across the board are one in 500 people. But just by being of Ashkenazi Jewish background, it's one in 40. So add a little family history into that mix. And now we're talking maybe a 10, 20% chance of having a BRCA mutation. So the first thing we think about is, is there an inherited mutation? Only five to 10% of all breast cancer on planet earth is because of a gene mutation that you inherit mm. like BRCA. So while it's incredibly important to make sure you don't have one, the vast, vast majority of women with breast cancer will not be having one. So the short list of people who should consider genetic testing include those, again, thinking mom and dad side, first, second, and third degree relatives. Are there two relatives with breast cancer prior to age 50 or ovarian cancer at any age? I call it the Jewish special. If you're Ashkenazi, you just need one of those. So one relative under 50 with breast cancer or ovarian at any age. If you yourself have had breast cancer prior to age 50, a triple negative subtype, which you would know if you had that, um, prior to age 60, if you've had two breast cancers, not a recurrence, but two totally separate ones, usually one in each breast. If there's any male breast cancer in the family. And finally, if there's just a whole lot of cancer going on. So um, in particular, the breast and ovarian, but also pancreatic melanoma, gastric, uterine, colorectal, and prostate. So if those red flags go up in any viewer or listener today, you should consider genetic testing. Now, if you test next, sorry, if you test negative, the second way family history layers in is one, it could just be a gene mutation that science simply hasn't caught up with yet. So you have one, but we don't know about it, right? So that's another thing when there's a really strong family history. But when there's just maybe even your mother and then a second cousin or so, you know, not that much breast cancer going on, we have to remember what else we inherit from families. And that's grandma's roast beef recipe and the apple strudel and the idea that the ideal vacation is to fly somewhere and sit in the hotel and watch movies nonstop, right? Like what is, what the, what else did you inherit that could be working against your ultimate health? Because if you look at all breast cancer patients diagnosed today, 87% of them do not have a single first degree relative with breast cancer and 80% of them no don't have any relatives with breast cancer, okay? Wow. Yeah, the odds that it's genetic are very low. So the converse stat should tell you something mind-blowing, and that is that, okay, 5 to 10% is an inherited mutation. I'm going to give 5 maybe even 10%, just crazy bad luck. Like, we don't understand it. You're only 32, and you don't have a gene mutation, and you have breast cancer, and you haven't lived long, badly long enough for genetic mutations to accumulate inside of you, right? DNA problems. Right. So we've got these extremes, but we have a bell curve, a very wide, fat bell curve of 80, maybe even 90% of all breast cancer on planet Earth that is from what? And I'll tell you what, exactly what. It's from our daily choices, every single choice we make, particularly every time we lift fork to mouth and chew and swallow, these choices are moving us closer to cancer or farther away closer not only to cancer, but all of life's major killers. So heart disease, stroke, diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's, every organ cancer. Diet and nutrition 
alcohol, exercise, obesity, hormone replacement therapy, emotional stress, environmental toxicities, for a greater rather than lesser degree, all of these things are under our control. If we focus on them and choose wisely, we can drastically limit the chances of ever dying from a disease that ultimately I believe we can control. I, I want to ask you a, a lot ab about those in just a second, but I, I also I think it's important that we also talk about the woman who has checked all those boxes as far as Ashkenazi Jew, has people in her family under 50 who have been diagnosed. Maybe they come to you just preemptively out of fear and they're saying, Doc, I would rather you remove my breast than go through life just feeling like a ticking time bomb. Those are some of the most difficult conversations you have as a doctor, I would imagine. I mean, those have to be like heart-wrenching kinds of conversations, just given the level of fear that, that this person is carrying around with them every single day. Right. Well, a lot of times we can get to the bottom of the genetic issues. So if some of the family members haven't been tested, let's just say an aunt tests positive for BRCA, but this person's mom died, and that's the source of her fears. My goodness, my mom died, and I was only four years old. I didn't even know her, so this is, I don't care about my breasts that much. Just take them so I don't follow in mom's footsteps that way. Okay, but mom's sister also had breast cancer. She tests positive for a gene mutation. We can pretty much assume mom had it too, and when you test and you don't have it, you're off the hook. You're back to one and eight, which is still a pretty high number for the rest of us, but that's definitely not a number we just prophylactically remove breasts over, one and eight. Sure. So we can sure. create some more understanding of what really is happening in that family tree. On the flip side, a lot of women feel like they, well, they don't feel like this. They're just not educated. They didn't know. They thought all they could do is maybe a mammogram now, starting them early or at 40, and hope and pray they don't get breast cancer. They didn't know, okay, no, 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 we can be very proactively doing surveillance on these breasts of yours. You could, for example, see me twice a year for an exam. It's not just mammo and done for the year. We're going to do a mammogram and a whole breast screening ultrasound, which has no radiation or ill side effects, so that's safe and useful to do. Six months later, we could do a breast MRI, which is our very best look inside that tissue. And, my friend, I have written a book of all these things that you can be doing inside your and in your body to help dramatically reduce the risk of ever getting breast cancer. You are not a sitting duck. You're not just waiting for fate to play out, yes or no, for breast cancer for you. So there's education that I do, and a lot of people like visibly just relax a bit and think, okay, because when I came in here and I said I wanted mastectomies, I didn't really want mastectomies, I really just don't want to die from breast cancer. And while I can't make you know 100% promises, there is a lot of uncharted territory for basically every woman that walks in my office. For sure. For sure. I, I would imagine you are the great stress reliever because uh, that is a heavy burden to be carrying around, you know, for, for so many years. Um, let's talk about the nutritional component here. That's obviously a huge focus of what we do here at the Physicians Committee. Yes. Um, when did you start to make that connection between what it is that is on our plate and how that affects our risk of developing cancer? I love this question. Okay, so I, I, I can't even believe how long it took me to make the connection. So, you know, I finished my my 
residency in 91, my, in, oh, I mean, in 2001, and then I finished my um, breast fellowship in 2002. So here I am coming up on 18 years of just focusing on breast cancer and breast cancer surgery and its treatment, right? And occasionally mm-hmm. I come across a pearl of wisdom for almost that whole time I've now known for whatever, for the reason, now I know the reason. But I used to know that three cups of green tea would cut breast cancer in half and that there were these great studies in China and Japan that showed that breast cancer patients in early stages one and two who drank three cups of green tea a day dropped recurrence by 47% and even higher Hmm. stages by about 25% just from the green tea. I also knew that if you squeeze some lemon in there, you bump up the EGCG content fivefold and the power is even greater. Okay, so I had these little pearls to give people. I knew that they should not be overweight. I knew that they should exercise a bunch. But basically, it stopped there. I did not have a deep understanding of what a phytonutrient was, of what the plant-based chemicals inside of a broccoli floret would do once you chew and swallow. Right. No idea. So what it took was my deep dive into nutritional science when I was writing Breast the Owner's Manual, which is um, it's a comprehensive overview of all the things you can be thinking about to reduce your risk. But then there's a definite chunk of the book that's about optimizing outcomes as you navigate all of your treatment choices. But this book was written with every woman in mind. So it's not just, oh, now I have cancer, here's a book for you. It, it's for every woman so that hopefully you never get that breast cancer. And a big part of it are these two chapters, eat this and don't eat that. And when I dove into nutritional science because I wanted every fact I said in that book to be able to be referenced, this is not a book of my opinions. It is based on scientific research and fact. And I needed to be right for that reason. So, and it's just, you know, my AAA personality has to be right. So I did the deep dive and as my kids would say, mind blown, I could not stop devouring the enormous amount of scientifically backed research clearly showing that the cellular response to consuming animal protein and animal fat is everything that illness requires and loves and everything that health can't tolerate. In other words, I couldn't believe that I didn't know it. I was a a little more than upset with all of my medical training. Like, was this a big secret kept under wraps? Because um, one of the most mind-blowing studies of all time would have been published in July 1990 by Dean Ornish in The Lancet, not a little journal of nutritional molecules. I made that up. I don't think that exists. So it's (laughs) literally this massive international recognized reputable journal comes to this publication two years before I enter medical school saying that by following healthy diet and lifestyle behaviors, largely eating a vegetarian or vegan diet and exercising every day and having some social support and meditation, you can not prevent the number one killer of you and everyone you love, which would be heart disease, not slow down its progression, but actually reverse it like blocked arteries wide open (laughs) in 80% of participants. Like, That was two years before I went to medical school, and now it's 30 years after, and I find it by accident while I'm trying to do research for the nutrition part of my book on breast cancer. That's how I find out that plants can reverse coronary artery disease. 
So that was just the beginning of my said deep dive. And when I really had had enough, um, I'll tell you the day, the day I had enough, I had, I took Fridays off when I wrote, I had to work four days a week. I took Fridays off. I didn't parent at all for a year. And, um, basically that I felt guilty about that. So that particular, I, I kid you not, I had gone downstairs to the kitchen, um, to make the kids lunch. So at the time my kids were seven, they were triplets. They are triplets still, uh, boys. And I'm like, I'm going to wow. make them lunch. Cause I'm like going to be a good mom for 10 minutes. And <laughs> I, this is the lunch I made them. So I, you have to realize I was a teenager in the 80s. And in the 80s, bread, pasta, rice, and potatoes were a no-go. I was a carbohydrate right. And I stayed that way. I stayed that way for, forever until the research for the book. And I, like any good mother would, was trying to pass that carb phobe down to my kids. So instead of bread <laughs> on, their, on their sliced organic turkey breast sandwich, I just rolled turkey breast slices around a mozzarella stick and put wow that's what i did that day that i then went back upstairs and i read the iarc meeting from july 2015 um where they had 22 researchers from 10 different countries looking at 800 epidemiologic studies simply to answer the questions does red meat cause cancer does processed meat cause cancer and as your listeners likely know, they came away from that deep dive into that research with the absolutely carcinogenic to humans list. Top of it now, processed meat, all processed meat. So I, everybody kind of coming right. in your heart of hearts, you have to know bacon's bad, right? Like bacon. Okay. But sausage, hot dogs, all that. Yeah, I hadn't eaten red meat since I was 10. So none of that fazed me. But wait a minute. The organic sliced turkey breast that I just rolled over a little death stick had the same mm. exact carcinogenic rating as plutonium and asbestos and tobacco. I mean, had I known that, I just rolled up, I would have rolled up cigarettes for them instead. No, I'm kidding. Mother of the year, rolling up cigarettes for your seven-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> so they, th that was it. I had done, I had read so much, but apparently not enough at that point. But I, I, um. They came home from school. I heard them come down and I ran downstairs and I was like, boys, boys, come here, come here, come here. They come over to the fridge and I fling open the doors with great flair and I say, we're going vegan. And they were like, yeah, what is vegan? <laughs> <laughs> and I emptied out that fridge of every single piece of fish and the turkey slices and the meat and the butter and the cheese and the eggs and opened up the freezer and lo and behold my organic veggie burgers had cheese in the middle of all that list and everything went into four bags of groceries brought them over to my 85 year old parents who live a mile away and was like here it's too late for you no <laughs> i'm kidding i didn't say that because i don't believe that it's never too late but i did give them those bags i have to say because they would never talk to me again if they knew i had thrown out all that food yeah they're depression babies sure. so Right. Um, that was it. Literally, the end. Not another drop of any animal product in my kids, my husband, or myself since that fateful day. Were you, were your kids able to grasp, you know, why mom was doing that? I mean, how was that conversation? Why are we doing this? Like seven years old, there's a lot of science that goes into it. Were they on board with all of it? Yes. That night we watched What the Health, and they totally got it. Two days later, we went to um, Whole Foods where they have this 
all, cheese altar to the cheese gods, you know, in the whole center of the store. <laughs> yeah. Which used to be my favorite place on the earth. Um, and I was somewhere else. Justin pulls me, mom, 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 mom. Okay, yes. And he drags me over to the cheese and he shows me it. And then he whispers to me, mom, they don't know. I was like, okay. From the mouth of babes, they totally get it. They'll come home, even, right you know, on. they come home now and they're like, mom, Oh my gosh, we were talking at lunch and so and so, she has Lunchables every single day. And I told her, she's going to grow up and get diabetes. <laughs> I was like, oh no, don't touch our preaching. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but they get, when you ask if they get it, they get that this is about their future health. And no seven year old, sure. no 10 year old, no 25 year old young man is worried about his prostate. But, you know, they, these kids get it. They get that it's a very future outlook, but it matters now. So that's yeah, that's really cool. And they're athletes. That's they're really tremendous really cool. little athletes, actually, like beyond um, following in Daddy's Ironman footsteps. So, like the other day, Sebastian rode his bike 100 miles without stopping. So holy, it took six and a half hours. The kid has an FTP like greater than mine, which is embarrassing since he's 40 years younger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I mean, I mean, most kids play soccer or baseball, football, basketball, whatever the case may be. Your guys are already going Iron Man. I mean, go hard or go home, right? You know what the heck? <laughs> it's true. Though, it's true. Yeah, they're. Um, uh, you like this? Let's uh, let's let's talk about uh, animal protein. You know, we we talked about uh, the processed meat and the red meat, obviously, um, but what. The, the animal proteins, I don't think that the body necessarily discriminates based off of whether this is coming from cheese or milk or meat. You know, the, on a cellular level, does the body react the same? The body reacts dramatically differently. A protein is not a protein. Ah, it's not a go. protein. So it's okay. what comes wrapped in and around that protein that we haven't actually discerned exactly what all is in each morsel of meat that incites such a cellular response. But I can tell you some of the things. So I can tell you what happens. Every time you chew and swallow any animal-based anything, be it a chunk of meat or cheese, estrogen levels skyrocket, growth hormones go through the roof, in particularly the big daddy growth hormone of them all, IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1. Angiogenesis happens, so angio blood vessel genesis births, the birth of new blood vessels. This little cancer cell is so sinister, it literally creates a network of blood flow to it to bring its nutrients that it needs to multiply and divide and become this actual cancerous wad, and then, boom, exit strategy right out through those same blood vessels to your lung, to your liver, to your bones. This mm. response also then incites a ton of inflammation and free radical formation, which all runs around in the battle of what we call oxidative stress creating cellular and DNA damage that then is the spark. The spark that then can be immediately quelled by an influx of antioxidants. So how do you get those? Well, the only source on planet Earth of antioxidants is plants. So there was one study that I love to tell patients about. I have two studies that I there are a number of studies. What am I saying? I can't even count them. But there's a few favorites because it gives people a boom, aha moment. And no, it is never too late for you. That's the statement I like to make to them. So here are the two things. One, there was a study that took 
100 people and gave them a standard American diet for breakfast, and they measured oxidized LDL cholesterol levels as a measure of oxidative stress in the postprandial after a meal state, okay? So steak and eggs, mm -hmm. pancakes and bacon, your typical sad meal, and up, 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 we get to lunch, hamburger and fries, up, 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 dinner. These people are going to bed every single night with fewer antioxidants than when they woke up. So there are only so many forgiving decades that you will make it through in your life before whatever that oxidative stress hammers at the most becomes your killer. So if it's your arteries, coronary artery disease and hello heart attack. If it's the little arteries in your brain, Alzheimer's and dementia. If it's the cells in your pancreas, burnout and type two diabetes. If it's the cells in your breast, breast cancer, prostate, prostate cancer. Here's the study. Same day, same people. Next day, same sad meal, one change. A cup of strawberries. Pancakes and bacon, LDL. Up, up, down, down, baseline. Hamburger and fries, one cup of strawberries. Up, up, down, down, baseline. So the power, the antioxidant power in a cup of strawberries can completely overwhelm and negate the oxidative stress reaction caused by this pancakes and bacon by noon. What would have happened if the breakfast had been steel-cut oats and a bunch of berries to begin with? Sprinkle some flax in there, maybe some Caesar nuts. <gasps> then the battle would be like oh, over before it began, and these phytonutrients that you've chewed and swallowed enter into your veins, go coursing through your body, saturating every cell in your entire being with antioxidant, anti-cancer, anti-angiogenesis, anti-estrogen, anti-growth hormone power all day long. I'm going to get wow. sick when you eat like that. Right, right. How do your patients react when you're telling them about that? I mean, who knew that one cup of strawberries could be so powerful, you know? So powerful. And I certainly didn't know. I did not know until recently. And now I'm not going to shut up about it. It's so <laughs> important. I'll shout it from the yeah. rooftops until everybody knows. My other favorite thing to tell people who look at me, and they may even hear that, and they're like, yeah, but Doc, I, I now I have breast cancer and I'm 66 and look at me I'm overweight and there's no way I'm I, I can't even like walk two miles without collapsing so come on it's too late for me oh, no 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 here's my another another story for you this one was with 50 obese women they took their blood checked IGF one levels which I already introduced as the big daddy of growth requirements which let me say for two seconds IGF one is necessary for life. We're very grateful for it. It makes a young person become a tall grown-up person because they have to grow. And we turn over a shocking 50 billion cells a day, stomach lining every 24 hours. And IGF-1, thank you, replenishes and replaces all of those cells. And it helps post-exercise muscles to repair. So it's a growth promoter, right? It screams at everything, grow, grow, grow. But your brain's super smart and it tells your liver exactly how much you need to accomplish those daily tasks. So what would happen if you had an excess? Well, first of all, the only place you can get an excess is by eating that animal protein and animal fat. Then it's just a right. response. So now you have too much for the day's activities, but it's not done. It doesn't know that. It just runs around screaming at things to grow. So you grow plaque. You grow fat. You grow a cancer into two cells, into four cells, into a wad of cells, into, into the liver, into the bone. Grow, grow, grow. So the only thing that quells the growth is that cup of strawberries, right? Or 
this study. So we've got 50 obese women. They test their blood, IGF-1 level baseline, and the IGF-1 binding protein, which is like a body snatcher, retires it from circulation, is actually how the antioxidants will work to decrease the IGF-1. Take their blood, drip it on a Petri dish full of human breast cancer cells. A few cells died. Everybody has some anti-cancer defenses in their immune system, right? Now these women go away, and here is the key. How long do they go away for? 12 days, okay? 12 days they go away and they follow a whole food plant-based diet, and they have to exercise every day, which for most of them is like walking slowly for 30 minutes, okay? They come back, draw the blood, IGF-1 levels have plummeted, binding protein has skyrocketed, and they take the blood on a new Petri dish full of breast cancer cells. The majority of cells dead on the spot. They literally transform their blood into a cancer-kicking machine in less than two weeks. Mind blown. (laughs) Thank you. I know. People need to know it is not too late. It is as if Someone's just smoking and blowing that smoke in your face all day long, and you don't know any different. You don't know any different, and then just for whatever reason, they stop. And within 10 minutes, you're like, why is the air so clear? That's what your body does. You just stopped. Stop it with the non-fat Greek yogurt for breakfast. This is me. I was so healthy. Non-fat Greek yogurt with some other stuff. Lunch, gorgeous salad, feta, and a salmon filet. Dinner, no carbs, remember? No pasta or potatoes but i had lots of veggies and a lean boneless chicken breast animals 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 coffee with half and half animals animal all day long (sighs) smoke in my face doesn't take long that's how forgiving the body is two weeks without smoke in your face and your blood can kill cancer cells in a petri dish that's just that's so fascinating to me I mean, just mind blowing, and and I'm so glad uh, I got you here all month. You're going to be on every show this month as we continue uh, to talk about our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign, uh, and we're going to talk about a four pronged approach, and we can get in more deeply to the role that fat plays and things like that. Um, but I I also want to ask you about soy because there obviously we talk about this on the program a lot too. Is there's abundant evidence that say soy is absolutely healthy, yet there's still that pervasive myth out there that soy is something that women should be avoiding because if you eat soy, you're gonna get cancer, right? right. So you know, were you avoiding soy at that point when you were avoiding carbs as well? I take full responsibility for having told every single breast cancer patient for 18 years straight to avoid soy. So when I went to write my book, and now I'm a broken record. Apparently I wasn't smart at all before I wrote this book. Um, I dove into nutritional science literally to prove with science that you should avoid soy. Mm. And then mm-hmm. embarrassingly wrong, went through the data and realized the facts. So the knee-jerk reaction from all of us physicians is simply there's phytoestrogens in soy. We knew that. Genistein, the isoflavones, right? And I would tell people, I don't think that, the, oh, you have to understand that 80% of all breast cancers are fed and fueled by estrogen. So there's a receptor sitting on the outside of that cancer cell. And when estrogen hits it, it will send a signal to the cancer to multiply and divide. Okay. So hence, phytoestrogens, I thought, this receptor isn't discriminating. Oh, you're not from the ovary. I'm not going to respond to you. No, I think estrogen says it's a key fitting a lock. 
And as soon as it fits, it turns and cancer multiply and divide. So how much do you love soy milk and tofu? Just spit it out of your mouth. You're done with that. That's what I would say. <laughs> Don't take that in isolation and make that now because I say the opposite. So why do I say the opposite? This is what I learned. First of all, we have two receptors for estrogen in our bodies, alpha and beta. Alpha is on the bad cancer. Beta, which soy isoflavones preferentially fill with 1,600% more affinity, beta does two amazing things. It shuts alpha down, so it acts just like the tamoxifen drug we give breast cancer patients, which is an estrogen decoy drug that fills that receptor but inactivates it. Soy is inactivating it. And... It goes out into your body where you have fat cells. And wherever there's a fat cell, there's an enzyme called aromatase. And aromatase is super busy churning other steroids like testosterone and androstenedione dione from your adrenal gland into estrogen. Not a ton, as any postmenopausal woman will attest to. It certainly is not stopping their hot flashes or making them fertile. But it's estrogen, mm -hmm. and it can fill a cancer cell receptor to feed and fuel it. Soy, beta receptor out to the fat cells and inactivates aromatase. So you're decreasing estrogen levels and you're blocking the alpha receptor. And for the small portion of genistein that's going to end up in the alpha receptor, it has one-tenth to one-one-hundredth of that signaling capacity of the real deal estrogen. So now it's acting just like tamoxifen, sitting there like, you know, a parked car. All right. Really? That sounds great. That's, this, that's the biology, biology for you. But when you put it to the test and you look at studies in humans, what are we seeing? And in fact, we're seeing shocking numbers. Shocking why? Because we have a 60% drop in breast cancer occurrence, 60% drop in recurrence in those who already had breast cancer, and a 29% drop in death. And why are those numbers shocking? Those are the same numbers of tamoxifen reducing risk against placebo. Wow. So it acts just like the anti-estrogens that we give you that are prescriptions. And furthermore, people who are high versus low soy consumers have dramatically less recurrence in death from estrogen negative cancer. These are cancers that don't care about estrogen. So that speaks to the anti-carcinogenic powers that are outside the estrogen pathway found within soy. So long story short, consume two to three servings of soy daily to maximally reduce your cancer chances. Okay. Wow. I think that kind of puts that one to bed. That's that's another mind-blowing one. Why Why is it that, you know, despite the fact that there's all this science out there now, that, that myth is, I mean, it's still pervasive, you know? Like you said, you, you told your patients that for years. I did. The human studies did not start. The very first one came out in 2009. Again, so I'm not giving anybody excuses. We should pick up a journal in the last decade and have seen some of this stuff. But what journals are they in? They're not in, the, you know, what I'm, I'm looking at very breast-focused surgical things, right? We each have our niche. When we grow up and we're doctors, we have what we do. And then when we go home, we're not looking for pearls of wisdom about soy. We're right. you know, doing our own thing, <laughs> number one. So the studies in humans weren't until 2009. Number two, the studies prior to that, if any anti-soy doctor out there has actually looked at them, if they have what they've seen, is that for the most part, soy is beneficial, but mm, about 10% of the time, not so much. Uh, real quick, you just mentioned men again. And so uh, the same things that we've been talking about, the low-fat diet, soy, eliminating animal proteins from the diet, 
all of those same principles hold true for men as far as lowering the risk is the same that they do with women, right? Absolutely. And there are risks of all the things we're talking about. So you can add in your prostate to all this. Soy consumption has been shown to draw prostate cancer by 70%. And all of these helpful lifestyle and dietary behaviors will equally reduce the big killers, the heart attacks, the strokes, the Alzheimer's. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about age because as a woman gets older, as a man gets older, I would assume as well, the risk of developing breast cancer, it increases. Why is that? Is that just the cumulative damage that we've done to our bodies over time finally catching up with us? Yes. So cancer is, for the most part, a sinister little beast that recruits its needs with a lot of patients, and I'm talking about a decade of patients. So when we look at the continuum of breast cancer disease from a cell getting morphed, becoming a little bit atypical, and then those atypical cells multiplying and dividing and then actually becoming cancerous, but stuck inside an intact milk duct or milk lobule, we call that in situ cancer. Then we've got another probable couple of years or so to go before that cancer may or may not build up enough volume and metastatic potential to break the duct wall and then spread eventually. We do know that when you hit the in situ cancer stage for breast, one third will break the wall, two thirds never will. That's crazy. Hmm. In other words, maybe the in situ and before that is a reversible moment. And it most probably is. Because there was this one study fairly recently, like 2015, looked at cadavers, about 850 breasts of women who died in car accidents. They were never diagnosed with breast cancer in their living lifetimes. And what they found was phenomenal. In women 40 to 50 years old, 39% of the breasts had DCIS, but they never knew it, this in situ cancer. But in women 50 to 70, 10% had DCIS, which would argue that 75% of the DCIS regressed at that threshold that's basically menopause at 50 years old. So it's fascinating to think that dietary and lifestyle interventions can reverse existing in situ disease. And in fact, Dean Ornish has shown that in prostate cancer, early prostate cancer as well, left it in the people and did dietary and lifestyle intervention and then rebiopsied and it was gone. So would that happen in breasts? Maybe, maybe not. I feel very strongly that it can happen when you're at the just the building stage, when that cancer is not yet cancer. It's just getting its nutrients, starting to get a little deranged, not following the normal signals that your body gives normal cells, and then they respond by multiplying and dividing perfect DNA. So I think it's, it's a critical understanding that we need to come to that we have the power to change our cellular destiny. We're born with certain DNA issues, but that's like a loaded gun. It's up to us whether or not that trigger gets pulled. What about uh, hormone replacement therapy? I know that that's something that you've, you've also looked at. So hormone replacement therapy, it comes in different forms. For sure, we know that Premarin, which is made out of horse urine, is strongly associated with a bump in breast cancer So there was a big study that came out in 2002, July, it was breaking news, and almost immediately 33 million HRT prescriptions disappeared out of the U.S. And in 2003, a mere one year later, 
for the first time ever, breast cancer plummeted 7%, which is a huge chunk. And that drop was predominantly in postmenopausal women with estrogen-driven cancers. That's what disappeared. So that is sort of evidence that the study was correct in 2002. So it had followed this um, 16,000 postmenopausal women, half placebo, half on the Premarin, and they halted the study early at 5.2 years because there was a 26% increase in breast cancer in the group taking the Premarin. There was an increase in heart attacks and dementia. There was a decrease in colon cancer and fractures. So these you know, persistent hormone use does have benefits as well. And therein lies all the controversy. And if you take out the progesterone, so if you don't have a uterus, you can take estrogen only. The progesterone is added in there to protect your uterus. So then they had another arm that was just estrogen only, and it turned out that they had a big a drop in breast cancer. However, it gets so complicated. However, that drop was only seen if they didn't take the estrogen for the first five years when they went into menopause, which is when you want to take it because you're half flashing your way to a divorce. And <laughs> it didn't, and it, you, had, you couldn't take it more than 10 years. So you couldn't take it the first five years when you really wanted it, and then you can't take it for more than 10 years. Otherwise, you had a huge bump in breast cancer. So these studies get really convoluted because you can pull out factoids and then advertise that according to your bent as a physician or, you know, if you're trying, if you, what you want to have your patients do, you can always, I had a professor once say you can, uh, when you torture statistics enough, they'll confess to anything. <laughs> <laughs> and that's unfortunately what you can do and as a consumer of sound bites which is what we are these days you can swallow the wrong sound bite um, my feeling when I really look at all the HRT data is that knowing that 80% of breast cancers are fed and fueled by estrogen you should first exhaust alternative methods of staving off your symptoms. And what are your symptoms, by the way? A lot of women are just saying, well, it's hot flashes. That's my thing. I don't have anything else. There are some effective remedies that are completely non-estrogenic for hot flashes. So you, acupuncture is very good for hot flashes, as is soy consumption. And uh, black cohosh, by the way, kind of hit and miss, but you can't take it for more than six months. It has liver toxicity. But that's when I hear patients say that they're taking and you can't take it long term. So my, my favorite by far is Menopause Miracle, which is a three Asian herb blend. And the reason why it's my favorite is that it's been very vetted in three randomized controlled trials against placebo. And in those trials, over 90% of women had a dramatic 60% or greater drop in all of the 12 symptoms of menopause that were driving them crazy. So hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, decreased libido, thinning hair, insomnia, memory, fog, it all benefited. And because of the human trials and doing blood draws, we learned that it doesn't increase estrogen levels. It's safe to take if you've had breast cancer. And it increased HDL, decreased LDL, and increased bone density. So it's a really awesome alternative to HRT that may take care of all of your symptoms and add benefit. Wow, bone density too. Yeah. Well, that's that's big for osteoporosis, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially Man, that's, to, that's pretty um, impressive. Yeah, the aromatase inhibitors is that family of breast cancer drugs that go into the fat cells, right, and, and inhibit that aromatase so you're not getting the new creation of estrogen. Because if you're postmenopausal, your ovaries have shut down. You're not making estrogen. You're making precursors that aromatase makes into estrogen. So their drug of choice in a breast cancer situation is called an aromatase inhibitor. 
and those uh, can lead to osteoporosis. So that's the problem and joint pain. Real, real quick, uh, we're kind of running out of time uh, with this episode, um, but we've talked about lowering the risk, but what about the role nutrition plays in clean eating and lifestyle after a woman has been diagnosed or a man has been diagnosed with breast cancer and is going through that course of treatment? Um, how critical is it that they really kind of adhere to these guidelines that you and I have been discussing here for the better part of an hour? If you've been diagnosed with breast cancer, adhering to the dietary and lifestyle guidelines that we're talking through and that I detail throughout my book is critical to maximally reducing recurrence risk and death from breast cancer. And there are many studies showing an upwards of 50% drop in recurrence and in death for people who are avoiding animal proteins. So consuming a whole food plant-based diet, exercising regularly, maintaining an ideal body weight, and avoiding or limiting alcohol use are the four key factors to reducing cancer occurrence, recurrence, and death. And that's why those are the four key players in the Let's Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign that I'm proud to be involved in with PCRM. Because really, if you could control those four things, those are boulders on the scale, tipping you toward a recurrence and death, or away, depending on if the boulder is there because you're overweight by, you know, a measurable amount, your BMI is 25 or above. If Mm -hmm. you are consuming animal proteins with most of your meals, these are boulders dragging you toward illness. And it doesn't matter anymore. I don't care if there's aluminum in your deodorant. I, uh, at that point, hardly care if you're, um, the emotional stress is through the roof. Like all these things matter. Don't get me wrong. A pebble can tip the scales, but not when there's a boulder on there. The boulders have to be removed, and then we should pay attention to environmental toxicities and emotional stress. I mean, I, you can pay attention to all of it at the same time, but you're not going to sure. get as much as much um, cancer protection out of meditation as you are from literally eating a whole food plant-based diet. Uh, We're going to be speaking with you throughout the month uh, on every one of our episodes. We're going to dive deeper into those four prongs that you just talked about as part of the Let's Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. Um, But I I can't let you go also without asking you about this cancer-kicking summit that you have coming up in April of next year. I mean, this this just sounds incredible to me. Thank you. Yes, so I have been laboring away creating the most awesome, fun, cancer-kicking summit for women and men around the country to come join me. It's at the breathtaking Oceanfront Resort in Palos Verdes, so it's in Southern California, called Terranea, and we are doing a two-day deep dive into the soil of your life where we're going to get down and dirty there and really talk about these nine trees, basically, that I want you to plant in the orchard of your life to yield the most bountiful, fruitful existence that you ever dared to dream possible for you. And I can't wait to see you there. It's really going to be high energy, a lot of fun, and most important to me is I'm all about like brass tacks, like actionable things, like the cup of strawberries with the bacon. Like if you don't know what to do, you're just hyped up, you're going to lose that hype by the time you hit LAX after it's over. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a lot of awesome plans for you to leave with that will transform your life forever. And 
things that you can maintain because you want to. That's I think that's critical. Action items are critical. You know, that's that's why you wrote the uh, the breasts, the owner's manual. You know, I mean, like it's so important, like people need that step by step kind of guide sometimes just to help lead them through so they don't lose that enthusiasm and, and they can continue down that course. I want to end by asking you this. I want to end on a high note. I want to end with some inspiration. What message can you give to a woman who does have that rich family history of breast cancer, has been carrying around that burden? It's just been weighing her down since it first popped onto her radar. She's petrified that that's her future. What can you tell them as far as hope? What message do they need to know? So to those women out there who do have this austere family history that freaks you out, know first, we've got to make sure you don't have a gene mutation. Because if you do, there's stuff we can do. And it doesn't mean taking your breasts off. You don't want to do that. There's high-risk surveillance, and it can really dramatically take that load off of your mind to know that you're under a watchful eye. But what's even more than that is to know that you are not your genetic destiny. You have choices, and you can change your future path literally by changing what you eat and how you think and what you do on a daily basis. And I've got that roadmap for you. And that's in Breast, the owner's manual. We will put a link to that in the show notes for this very episode. You can also follow Dr. Christy Funk on Twitter and Instagram at drchristyfunk. Uh, phenomenal. Uh, I follow you. you. You put out some really good stuff. And I cannot thank you enough for this hour. It has been really enlightening, inspiring, educational. Um, you know, I think that, you know, this is also an episode that a lot of husbands need to listen to so that they can better understand things, you know, that, that their wife might be wondering, you know. So thank you so very much for your time. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with you throughout the month. You too, Jeff. Thanks. Right now on letsbeatbreastcancer.org, you can take the pledge to change your odds. Take that pledge and fight back against this disease. Put the focus on prevention. Take a pledge to follow the four-pronged approach that will significantly improve the chances that you live a long and healthy life, no matter how prevalent the breast cancer genes are in your family. Those prongs? Choosing plant-based foods, moving more, limiting alcohol, and working toward a healthy weight. And when you take that pledge, you will get all of the tools and resources you need to get moving in the right direction. And you'll also get Dr. Funk's free e-cookbook complete with a ton of delicious cancer-fighting recipes, including the Breakfast Breast Dorito. And her antioxidant smoothie, which she says contains the most cancer-kicking compounds found in a single glass of goodness anywhere on Earth. So take the pledge at letsbeatbreastcancer.org right now and take a stand with thousands of others. This episode of the Exam Room Podcast and the Let's Beat Breast Cancer Campaign wouldn't be possible without the support of our powerful partners, like Old Ways, offering educational programs, recourses, and recipes to help people live happier and healthier lives. Old Ways is a treasure trove of healthy information. 
online at oldwayspt.org. And Vistro, a plant-based meal delivery service for all dietary concerns. Gluten-free, soy-free, kosher, nut-free, high-protein, and low-calorie options. Vistro has you covered with more than 50 organic meals to choose from. Build your box at vistro.com. Coming up on the show next week, the first prong in our four-pronged approach is choosing plant-based foods. The foods that scream out anti-cancer the loudest and with total consistency come from plants. So whenever you eat plants, that microenvironment now takes away what cancer requires in order to continue to survive, to multiply, divide form a wad and then escape out into a metastatic location. When you eat plants, that tumor environment literally has compounds that are anti-estrogenic. And since estrogen fuels 80% of breast cancers, you're just taking away its main source of food. And it's anti-growth hormone. So the growth hormone creates a lot of the inflammation and the free radical formation that also is required for that microenvironment to feed a cancer. But you take it away with plants. That's next week on the show. So make sure that you subscribe to the exam room podcast by the physicians committee on Apple podcast and wherever shows are available. And when you do, please also give a five star rating because that way we can reach as many people as possible with this life-saving information. The higher our rankings, the more eyes and ears will see and hear this information and your help that five-star rating goes a long way to making that happen. If you ever have a question that you'd like to have answered on the show, please do not hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Chuck Carroll WLC and at PCRM. And you can also shoot us a message on Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC, but the physicians committee this time a little bit different, just spelled out at physicians committee. We would love to hear from you. And if you're in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia, don't forget we will be doing a live taping of the exam room Wednesday night, October 9th at the Fruitive location in Virginia Beach. So come on out and enjoy a bite to eat. We're going to be sampling their new fall menu and there's going to be some prizes to win. I'm going to be interviewing Fruitive founder and CEO Greg Roseboom. Check this out. Greg opened the store after learning about the benefits of a plant-based diet. He did it because he didn't just want to help his own family get healthier, but because he wanted to bring the idea of plant-based eating to an area that didn't have a lot of options yet. He wanted to make that town a healthier place, and that is why he opened Fruitive. So mark your calendars. Wednesday night, October 9th, We will be doing a live broadcast of the exam room from the Fruitive in Virginia Beach. And I'll be tweeting out a link to RSVP. And you can also find that link in the show notes for this episode. My thanks again to Dr. Christy Funk for joining us today. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember... 
keep it plant-based, and let's beat breast cancer. Breast cancer.